Well, good morning again. Good job settling in so fast. It's kind of hard after a break to like get settled back in. But if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Esther and just in preparing for that, I just want to repeat a thought that Dan offered in the welcome this morning. And that's this. Have you ever been in a place where you felt God calling or prompting you to do something which from your human standpoint, seemed very improbable or even impossible? Have you ever been in a situation like that? You just have this clear sense that this is what God wants you to do, but you can't see any way that this will ever work out. It makes no sense to you on a human level. Well, this week I went back through some emails from 2012, and it was when the search committee here reached out to me and asked me to consider this role. And let me read you something that I wrote in an email to them back then. This is 2012. I said, in one sense, it seems so improbable. Yet in another, it's so characteristic of the way God has worked again and again in Scripture. He doesn't always call those who are qualified in the eyes of the world but instead he qualifies those he calls. God not only operates in the realm of the improbable, but also in that of the impossible. We truly serve an awesome God. Amen? I've seen God do that in my own life. Maybe you can think of some times where you were faced with a similar situation. He's, he's prompting you to do something that seems so improbable or even impossible. And it doesn't have to be something life-changing. Maybe it's to teach in the Sunday school or to go across the street and share the gospel with a neighbor. And you think to yourself, I could never do that. I could never do that. And, and what's the point anyway? They would never respond to that. And so maybe you push that thought aside. But here's the thing. God doesn't limit his work to just the things that we're capable of doing. He doesn't. In fact, he wants to do far more than even what we can imagine. And he wants to do it through his power working in us. That's a verse you're probably familiar with, Ephesians 3.20. I use it for a benediction sometimes. It says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to what? His power, which is at work, within us. Well, if God's going to do that, it's going to have to be something that we're incapable of doing on our own. We can't even imagine it. And yet God wants to do it through us. It's an amazing thing the way God uses this to exercise our faith. See, when we get to that point, it takes a large measure of faith, doesn't it? To step forward and to follow God in faith and obedience. So, Scripture says that's the kind of life we're supposed to lead. That we as believers are to leave, live a life of faith. And faith is being certain of what we do not see. We can't see any way that this could work out. But God can. And through His power, He does this work in us. How accustomed are you to doing that? Doing things in obedience to God that do not make sense and seem totally impossible. And then another question, how comfortable are you doing that? That really pushes us, doesn't it? Well, this morning, we're going to continue our series in the book of Esther. It's a series called On Purpose. It's all about God working providentially in our lives. And we're going to see Esther confronted with what seems like an impossible situation. And yet in the face of this, we'll see her take a huge step of faith and obedience and as a result, we're going to see God's power at work through her. So the message title this morning is Turning the Tables. And we're going to cover two chapters, chapter 5 and chapter 6. And we'll be looking for three parts in the outline. First of all is Esther's petition in chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. And then secondly, Haman's presumption. We're going to go from chapter 5, verse 9 to chapter 6, verse 10. And then finally, Mordecai's promotion, chapter 6, verses 11 through 14. 
And so it's a long text. We won't read it up front, but we'll read it a little bit at a time as we work our way through it. So just to set the stage again, because this is like an unfolding event that we've been studying here, and it kind of builds upon itself. The Jewish people, God's chosen people, were facing total annihilation by the order of King Xerxes, the king of Persia. And an edict had gone out to, quote, destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, and to plunder their goods. That was chapter 3, verse 13. A man named Haman, who hated the Jews, duped the king into authorizing this edict, even though the king didn't know who these people were that were going to be impacted, and he also didn't know that it would include his own Queen Esther. And this order of the king was irreversible. There was no going back on it once it's issued. So we saw that there's two different powers at work here. One was a hate-filled man, Haman. And he despised the Jewish people in general and a man named Mordecai in particular because Mordecai wouldn't show him honor and respect and rise up and bow down before him. And the other power at work was Satan who was working behind the scenes trying to eliminate the Jewish nation to thwart God's plan for the salvation of mankind through the Jews. And so these two powers are at work. And Esther learns of the plot through Mordecai, who urged her to plead with King Xerxes on behalf of the Jewish people. Mordecai said these well-known words, Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. And so Esther agreed to approach the throne of King Xerxes. Even though it was illegal, she could be killed for approaching the king without being summoned. And even though this could cost her her life, she was committed to doing it. But what we also saw is before she approached the throne of King Xerxes, she approached a more important throne, the King of Kings. She approached the throne of God in heaven. And she fasted and prayed, and she enlisted a whole group of people, even her servants in the palace, the Persian palace, to fast and pray along with her. Now, we noted that she didn't just pray. See, it would have been wrong to just pray because God had put her in a position and prompted her to act. So it would have been wrong to just pray, but it also would have been wrong to just act without praying. Both were important as we're going to see. So she fasted and prayed, sought God's direction and favor, and they did this for three days. And so they're facing this seemingly impossible situation and she has to make the decision now to step forward in faith. And this is where we pick it up in chapter 5. We'll look first at Esther's petition in verses 1 through 8. So it begins, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip, the tip of the scepter. Now, now, just think about this for a minute. Esther's heart must have been racing as she's nearing the threshold to the inner court of the palace. And as she approaches that doorway, she still has... A choice as to whether or not to go in. She could have turned back away. She could have said, this makes no sense. I could be killed immediately for doing this. And besides, this edict is irreversible. What's the point in doing this? But she felt God calling her to do it. Even though it seemed impossible. So, Here's a point. God often calls us to do things that seem improbable or even impossible because, for one, it exercises our faith. 
And secondly, it gives him the glory because it's something that only he could have done. We can't take credit for that. Let me give you a couple examples from Scripture. These are in the Gospels. Remember when Jesus encountered the ten lepers? It's in Luke 17. He didn't heal them right away. He said, go show yourselves to the priests. Now that's something they would normally do after they'd been completely healed. They'd go to the priests and they'd be declared clean and they'd be authorized to rejoin society. Jesus doesn't heal them. He says, go show yourselves to the priest. That would seem completely ridiculous. Look, our skin is still rotting on the bone. Why would we go to the priest? They had to respond in faith and obedience. And the scripture says that as they went, their skin became like a newborn baby. Only after they made the decision to act in faith. Another time, Jesus and the disciples are surrounded by 5,000 hungry people. 5,000 hungry men and the women and children. And Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat. He says to the disciples. And they go, we got two fish and five loaves of bread. And he says, have them sit down and start passing it out. Now, he didn't multiply it first, where he's just got baskets of food. Now pass it out. He didn't. He blessed the five loaves and the two fish, and he said, start passing it out. That makes no sense. And it was only as they did that Jesus multiplied it. And they ended up feeding all of them and having baskets full left over. They had to act first in faith and obedience. And the same is true of Esther. Now, she stood at the threshold of that doorway leading to the inner court. Do you suppose she was in her comfort zone? Did she feel good about what she was about to do? I'll bet it was like fear and trembling. What about Jesus when he's in the garden about to go to the cross? Do you think he was in his comfort zone? No, great agony. He, his sweat included great drops of blood. This did not feel right or good, but he did it anyway. See, we cannot let this thing called our comfort zone keep us from doing God's will, no matter how weak or incapable we feel. Second Corinthians says, my power is made perfect in weakness. And Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. One of my favorite quotes over the past year has been from an author and pastor named Jim Cimbala. You may know him. He's the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle. This quote is so impactful to me, I keep it on the top of the document that I use when I'm preparing to teach, to remind myself of it frequently. Jim says this, I discovered an astonishing truth. God is attracted to weakness. He cannot resist those who humbly and honestly admit how desperately they need him. Our weakness, in fact, makes room for his power. Isn't that beautiful? I've never felt more unqualified or incapable in my life than when I stepped into this role. And it wasn't about me. It was what God wanted to do. And so, again, he doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And we have to respond in faith and obedience. So, Esther didn't let fear or uncertainty or weakness keep her from doing that which God was calling her to do. And then verse 1 continues, it said, The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Now, I want to jump into a little bit of the archaeology. We saw last time that there, between the inner court and the throne room, there was this open passageway. And the king could look down that corridor and he could see Esther in the inner court. This is the map that we looked at. The inner court is in red and the throne room is highlighted there in blue. So there were no doors in between. He could look and see her. And that's why it was illegal to enter even the inner court unless you're summoned. The sentence was immediate death unless the king held out his golden scepter. 
So here's a picture of the ruins of the, the palace, the citadel of Susa. And this is taken from the inner court, looking down that open passageway to the throne room of King Xerxes. And it's right there in the inner court where Esther stepped in. And it's right there from the throne room, looking down that corridor that Xerxes saw her. And he was pleased with her. And he held out the scepter. This is a picture of the throne room itself. Of course, it was incredibly elaborate and ornate. And all we have here is some of the foundation stones still left. But imagine the guards, when they saw Esther take a step into that inner court, they must have thought, only two things are going to happen here, either the sword or the scepter. And by God's grace, Xerxes held out the scepter. So in verse 2, he was pleased with her and he holds out the golden scepter. She must have been pretty relieved, right? This was one hurdle. She's cleared one, the first hurdle. And then in verse 3, the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. Now this was probably a bit of royal hyperbole. I don't think he really meant, I'll give you half the kingdom. But he's just saying, you name it. You know, we say that, I'll do anything, you name it. A little hyperbole, but it shows the favor that Esther was given by the king. What do you suppose was the source of this favor? Do you think it was her beauty and her personality and the king's love and affection for her? I think that was part of it, but I think there was far more than just that. Let me jump ahead 30 years after Esther. There's another man standing in this very throne room. Only the man on the throne is not Xerxes, it's his son Artaxerxes. And the man standing before him is Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, just like Esther, fasted and prayed and wept. And he went before the king and the king asked what it is that was burdening him. And he made, Nehemiah made his request to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls and the gates that had been burned. And he even requested that the king provide the timber from the royal forest. And then he provide a guard to protect them during the journey with all of the people and materials. And as he made this request, this is what Nehemiah 2.8 says. It says, and because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my request. Now see, Nehemiah had a great relationship with the king. He was his cupbearer, one of his most trusted officials. But there was more behind the favor than just that. It was because the gracious hand of God was upon him that the king granted his request. So both Nehemiah and Esther, we find that God moved upon the hearts of these kings to grant them favor. And we find this truth spelled out clearly in Proverbs 21.1. It says, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. God is the king of kings and presidents, by the way. And he can direct their hearts anywhere he pleases. And so this is why prayer was such an important first step before approaching the king. In a, in a real similar way, we shouldn't overlook God's role in our lives. Imagine you or I are going into a job interview and maybe we're thinking, I got the education, I got the experience, I've got this. And we ignore any role that God might play in it. What a missed opportunity that would be. See, God wants to be actively involved in every area of our lives too. And this is what it means in part to have a relationship with God. So we approach those events both spiritually, on our knees in prayer and even fasting, and physically. We fill out the application and we go to the interview. But we don't want to miss God's role in this in our lives too. So verse 4. Esther says, if it pleases the king, Esther replied, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. 
Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that he may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. Now, Esther didn't just blurt out her request, save the Jews. She had this plan that she was unfolding. Now, how did she come up with this plan? It doesn't say explicitly how she did, but we can pretty well suppose that she did so prayerfully and that God was leading her in this plan. And so once again, Xerxes is compliant. He said, bring Haman at once so that we may do what Esther asks. And then verse 6, as they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, now what is your petition? It will be given to you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. So what do you think happened here? Now we have a second request to come to a second banquet. Do you think she got cold feet? Like, uh, can he come to a, another banquet tomorrow? I mean, why didn't she put her request before the king? I mean, this almost seems redundant. Well, I think it's because Esther is following the leading of the Lord. And here's the thing. God has an important work that he wants to do between these two banquets. 24 hours. God has a work that he wants to do. Now again, if Esther wasn't prayerful going into this, then her planning and her implementation would have missed this important step. She wouldn't have been in step with the Lord. So this is Esther's petition, a second banquet now. And we want to look next at Haman's presumption. Take a look at verse 9. Haman went out that day happy and high, and high happy and high, in high spirits. <laughs> he was high. But when, Mordecai, but when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Now, in chapter 3, Haman was honored by King Xerxes and given a seat higher than any of the nobles. He was top dog. And here in chapter 4, he'd just been invited to two very exclusive banquets with the king and the queen and Haman. And so he heads out of the palace in high spirits. But then he comes to the king's gate and the mere sight of just one man that would not rise up in his presence fills him with rage. Imagine the degree of emptiness and insecurity that this man must have had that he needed every single person to rise up and pay him honor in order for him to feel satisfied. What was going on there? I mean, was he like a megalomaniac? Was he bipolar? I'm in high spirits. I'm in rage. What is going on here? I think the real problem is that he was looking for his sense of self-worth in all the wrong things. Here's the thing. God did create us with this desire to be accepted, right? We want that. Nobody likes to be rejected. But God ultimately wants to fulfill that desire through Jesus Christ, through the Lord, not through any human. So what does it take for you to be satisfied, for me to be satisfied? Where do we find our sense of self-worth and self-esteem? I was shocked to find many studies that suggest that 85% of the world's population is affected by low self-esteem. That's amazing, 85%. What do we do about that? I heard about one man that went to his doctor with this problem of low self-esteem. And so the doctor, in order to build him up, prescribed that he play golf using an imaginary ball. And so the man goes out the next day to the course, and on the first tee, he's paired up with another man who had the same problem and went to the same doctor. So both of them are playing golf with an imaginary ball. 
And all day long, they hit nothing but eagles, birdies, and pars. It's a glorious day. They're feeling good. They get to the final hole, and they're all tied up. And so the one man tees off, and he goes, look at that, straight down the fairway. And would you believe it? My ball landed right on the edge of the green. And the other man, he tees up. What do you know? His ball landed right on the edge of the green beside the other man's. So they make their way down. The first man goes for his putt. Oh, I, I drained it 20 feet for eagle. I win. And the second man looks at him and says, no, you don't. You hit my ball. <laughs> Imaginary golf balls is not the answer to low self-esteem. Our identity and our sense of self-worth are meant to be found in God. He made us in his image and as believers, he redeemed us by the precious blood of his son. This is what gives us value and self-worth, not power or prestige or wealth or beauty or any of those worldly things. Now, we can enjoy those blessings that God affords us, but even then, we have to recognize them as a gift from God and receive them with thankfulness. And if we don't, they're just going to, in the end, leave us empty and miserable, just like Haman. I like what Pastor Rick Warren said about our identity. He said this, you stop accepting what others have said about you, how others have labeled you, and how others have defined you. You start believing what God says about you, that he is pleased with how he created you, and that God defines you. You're not defined by your feelings. You're not defined by the opinions of others or by your circumstances. You're not defined by your successes or failures. You're not defined by the car you drive, the money you make, or the house you say you own when the bank really does. You are defined by God and God alone. He identifies you as his. Amen? We're a child of God. That's what gives us a sense of self-worth. God places value in us. Haman's real problem is that he rejected the God of all creation and he was looking to fill that void with the things of the world. And so in the blink of an eye, he goes from being in high spirits to seething in rage. But verse 10 says, Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. I think the Lord's hand was in this too. Restraining him until God could enact his plan. So verse 10 continues, calling together his friends and Zeresh's wife. Haman boasted to them about all, about his vast wealth and his many sons. He had 10 sons, we'll find out in chapter 9. And all of the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. I guess he felt the need to build himself back up after being torn down by one man who wouldn't rise up in his presence. See, Haman's greatest sin was pride. It's the root of pretty much every sin. Pride. Verse 12 says, And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all of this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. So verse 14, his wife Zeresh and all her friends said to him, have a gallows built, 75 feet high, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go with the king to the dinner and be happy. Well, this suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the gallows built. Now, most translations refer to the, this structure as a gallows, and when we think of a gallows, we probably think of like a platform and a, and a beam and a rope where you hang someone by strangulation. But that's a modern thing. They didn't have that back then. The primary form of execution in the Persian era, both before and after, was by impalement. Here's a, here's a stone relief showing the Judean prisoners impaled by the, the Assyrian king Sennacherib. 
in 701 BC. This was after he conquered the city of Lashish. And this event is spelled out in Assyrian documents, and it's in the Bible in 2 Kings 18 and 2 Chronicles 32. It tells all about this event, and here we see it vividly portrayed in a series of stone reliefs that surrounded Sennacherib's palace in Nineveh. And you can see there, this impalement was a, it was a brutal thing. I mean, it's kind of like crucifixion. They put them on that pole and they're belly and they pull their legs down and they hoist them up and it was just miserable. And many other records from the time support that this was the primary form of execution. And so in our text, the word that's translated gallows is literally translated tree or pole. Put them on a pole, prepare a pole 75 feet high. The New Living Translation does a real good job. They say a sharpened pole. That's a better rendering than gallows. So this proposal to impale Mordecai on a 75-foot pole delights Haman. Great idea. For him, it wasn't enough just to kill Mordecai or even to kill hundreds of thousands of his people to wipe them all out. That wasn't enough. He wanted to make a humiliating public display of him. And that's what... These, this impalement was. 75 foot pole. I want everybody to see this man. And you know what? It just, it just reminds us. We should never underestimate the power of hate. That's what's driving this man. Hatred and evil. That same evil exists today. It hasn't gone away. It's still out there. So chapter 6 verse 1. That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. You may remember that from chapter 2. Xerxes asks in verse 3, What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendant answered. Well, what a coincidence that, like, like Xerxes can't sleep on this particular night. And so he has the chronicles brought into him. This is like a detailed log of all the daily activities going on in the kingdom. And it was written on clay tablets. I guess he felt, well, that'll put me to sleep for sure. And so they start reading these clay tablets. And and another amazing coincidence, the tablet that he's reading speaks of Mordecai and how he exposed the plan and saved the king's life. Now we know that none of this was coincidence. Again and again, we see God's providence. God working behind the scenes, orchestrating the ordinary things of life to achieve his extraordinary purpose. Well, in the 1930s, a group of archaeologists from the Oriental Institute here at the University of Chicago, they were excavating in the uh, city of Persepolis, the sister palace and, and capital to Susa that we're working with. And they uncovered a cache of over 20,000 of these clay tablets at the palace in Persepolis. It's called the Persepolis Fortification Tablets. Biggest cache of information on the Persian Empire ever. And they record events from the time of Xerxes and his, fa- his father Darius, and I think even Artaxerxes, uh, Xerxes' son. But most of them are just like detailed financial records, like of taxes, their receipts, crop yields, all the stuff like that. In fact, this pretty much put the translators to sleep. They, they, they weren't in any big hurry to translate all 20,000 of them because like, this is just like bookkeeping. And to this day, the project is not finished. But they found these records. And so it's these kind of chronicles that are being read. And they come across the one about Mordecai and what he had done. And it reminds King Xerxes of how Mordecai had saved his life. For whatever reason, the king and all the royal officials totally forgot what Mordecai had done for him. And and Mordecai had gone completely unrewarded. Now... 
Do you ever feel that some of the things you do for the Lord are unrecognized or unrewarded? Maybe especially as you look at your friends or coworkers who aren't following the Lord. They're pouring a lot more time into their jobs and they're making more money and they're getting the promotions and you're spending parts of your weeknights and your weekends serving the Lord and you're like, is this even worth it? Why am I doing this? Maybe you've been tempted to give up. Maybe you already have. It just seems like it's going nowhere. Well, listen to what Hebrews 6.10 says. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. God knows. Every one of you who's serving in the church, who's serving in your communities, in your neighborhoods, in your workplaces, God knows and he will not forget. Galatians 6, 9 says, let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. God sees every single good deed that we do and they will never go unnoticed or unrewarded by God. We will reap a harvest at the proper time. Maybe that's in this life. Maybe it's in the next life. But we will reap a harvest. God's not like Xerxes. He will not forget. So don't be discouraged in serving him. Even if it seems like nobody recognizes. We're not in it for the recognition. We're not rewarded. Well, God sees. He knows. And he will reward. So in verse 4, the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had erected for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. It's another striking coincidence. Haman just happens to be in the outer court. He just happens to be coming to talk to the king about impaling Mordecai. Now the court that's mentioned here, the outer court is different than the inner court where Esther was. Let's go back to that map for a moment. See, a person would enter the palace through the king's gate and they come first to the outer court. That was the biggest court. It was 205 feet long and 175 feet wide. And this is where Haman was. And then from there, you would pass through a double guard room and into the smaller middle court. And then you'd have to go through another double guard room and into the inner court. And then finally, there's that open passageway that leads down to the king's throne room. So the deeper you go in, the more secure it is and the smaller these courtyards are. So Haman is hanging out in the outer court. Now here's a picture of the actual ruins of the citadel of Susa. Again, there's the outer court, the, the middle court, and the inner court just off the left side. And in blue, I highlighted the throne room. So this is the path that Haman would have taken. And the walls of this outer court where he's hanging out, here's a, here's a closer view of the outer court. Now, it's been, part of it's been dug up and excavated. That's a reason for the pit. But the walls of this thing were covered in, in really colorful murals. Some of them have been preserved. Here's a couple of the murals that were on the outer walls of that, or on the walls of that outer courtyard. And so Haman almost certainly saw these same murals. I mean, many times he would have seen these in that courtyard, which is amazing to me. But he's hanging out there in the outer court, hoping to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai in this 75-foot pole. And what's interesting, though, is that surrounding the outer court, archaeologists have found uh, eight foundation stones that have a circular hole in them. And these holes are from three to four feet in diameter. And you can see five of them. I put arrows there in this picture. And the excavators understood these to be the bases for wooden pillars or poles. Now, maybe it was just an architectural element. Or maybe they were used for impaling enemies of the state. We can't know for sure. But it's just interesting that that's where they were, right there in the outer courtyard. And so this is where Haman is hanging out. 
And he is summoned into the king's presence. And so he would have proceeded from the outer courtyard through the first double guard room into the middle court. This picture shows the middle court in the distance. And this is taken from one of the double guard rooms. So Haman would have passed through this very passageway on the way to the king. So here he goes. He's going in to see the king. And back in verse 6 it says, When Haman entered, the king asked him, What should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, Who is there that the king would rather honor than me? Again, you see his arrogance and his presumption here. So he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with the royal crest placed on its head. Then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor. And lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. I'll bet Haman laid in bed at night just imagining himself on this horse with the crest on its head and a king's robe and somebody leading him around. This is what's done for the man the king delights to honor. I mean, this was like his fantasy. Well, it was common to actually decorate the heads of horses. I found this interesting. It says, and put on his head a crown that the king has worn. Not on the head of the man on the horse, but on the horse itself. And uh, there's, there's actually stone reliefs that show this crown. I didn't, I didn't put one in here. But he gives this whole uh, scenario to Xerxes. And in verse 10, Xerxes says, go at once. The king commanded Haman, get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. Oh, how I wish I could have seen Haman's face at that moment. I mean, in his pride and his presumption, he thought the king was going to honor him. He thought this was going to be his big day, but it's actually for the man he hated most, Mordecai. Think about some of what God says about pride. I pulled out four verses here for you. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. We, you often hear it, you know, pride comes before the fall. James 4, 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Matthew 23, 12, Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James 4, 10, humble yourselves therefore before the Lord and he will lift you up. What do we see happening here? Haman is the epitome of pride, seeking honor for himself and God humbled him. In fact, Haman would have had to put down a stool, stoop down and put a stool at Mordecai's feet, a stool that they used to get up on the horse. Meanwhile, Mordecai was humble, and he was lifted up and exalted. Now, the recognition of Mordecai before this second banquet was important, as we're going to see next week in the next chapter. But let's look quickly at Mordecai's promotion, the last five verses here, 11 through 14. Four verses. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. I wonder how enthusiastically he said that. Probably under his breath. How hard must that have been for Haman? Again, he has to stoop down and put this stool at Mordecai's feet. The NIV says that he was led through the city streets. But a better translation would be the square of the city. Does that sound familiar? The square of the city? It's exactly what we saw in chapter 4, verse 6. And it's the, it's the exact same word. 
Do you remember the square of the city? It's across the moat from the king's gate. And it's the place where just a few days before, Mordecai was mourning in sackcloth and ashes. And, and Esther said, here's some clothes. Put these on so he can come into the palace. He refused. He wanted to mourn before the Lord and before the people. Well, now that very place of his mourning has become a place where he's being exalted. That's where he's being paraded around on the horse. Verse 12 says, Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief. Notice Mordecai didn't rush home to tell everybody what he had. You won't believe it. I, was, I got this robe. I was praying around. You know what? Mordecai wasn't living for the recognition. He wasn't. He just goes back to his job. Okay. <laughs> He's back at the gate working. He wasn't like Haman who rushed home after the first banquet. But here Haman does rush home. But with his head covered in grief. Look who's mourning now. He covers his head. It's not an act of repentance and humility. I think what he's doing is he didn't want anybody to see his blubbering over the humiliation and shame that he just experienced. So he covers his head and he heads back home. See, God had turned the tables on him, didn't he? He, he exalted himself and God humbled him. Mordecai humbled himself and God lifted him up. Verse 13, he, Haman, told Zeresh's wife and all of his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. Now, these are the same people who earlier said, I got an idea, make a 75-foot pole and impale Mordecai on it. Where was their wisdom then? But now they seem to have some knowledge of God's power and his love for his people. Because this is almost prophetic, what they're saying here. Your downfall has started. It's not complete yet. And you cannot stand against Mordecai. You'll surely come to ruin. So, Verse 14, the last verse. While we, they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. Banquet number two. It's going to get worse for Haman. It's going to get much worse as we're going to see next time in chapter 7. But what can we take away from these two chapters? What do we need to be reminded of? What do we apply to our own life? This is written for our instruction. So what do we take away from this? Well, let's just do a quick recap. God calls us to do many things that may seem improbable or even impossible from a human standpoint. He doesn't limit his work to just the things we're capable of doing. No, he wants to do exceedingly more than all we can ask or imagine. And we need to respond to that in faith and obedience. There's no place for comfort zone when God calls us. We need to do what he calls us to do. And when we do, we're going to see God's power working through us. Next, our world has an identity crisis. And that's because their identity is, and their sense of self-worth is found in worthless things. Our identity and our worth needs to be in found in God alone. Anything else is just going to leave us feeling empty, burned out, bitter, and lost. It leads to eternal death. God is providential and he's always at work. He's working all things together for the good, not of everybody, but for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Who are obediently following him. And we see his providence in Esther. We see it again and again. We have to remember that our good deeds will never go unnoticed or unrewarded by God. So don't grow weary in doing good and don't give up. And I say this one almost every week. We can trust the word of God. Every word of it is true. Whether it's speaking of past events 
We can see the, the historicity, the accuracy in stone. Or whether he's talking about the present time or future events. Every word of it is true. These are the words of life and we need to cling to them. And finally, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And here's what God says. In response to this truth, this is thus. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. We're going we're gonna to continue this study next Sunday as we look at the fate of Haman. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you. You are the King of kings, Lord of lords, and we can approach your throne with complete confidence, not having to fear for our lives because Jesus gave his life in our place. God, we're so thankful that we can find rest in you because you're good and you care for us. You care for every detail of our lives. And you're at work in those details, just as you were in the lives of Esther and Mordecai. And God, that should bring us comfort and peace and hope and confidence. It should motivate us to do your will. But yet, God, there's some here who probably don't know you, who don't have that access to you through Christ, the one and only way. They probably feel that emptiness inside. And so, God, I pray that this morning you would impress upon them the need to humble themselves and to surrender their lives to you in repentance and faith. God, that they might receive your amazing grace, your eternal life, a heavenly home, an inheritance that will never pass away. God, we thank you for Jesus, for his perfect life, for his death and his resurrection on our behalf that makes this relationship, this position in which we stand possible. And so God, it's in his powerful name that we pray. Amen. Let's worship the Lord. You go ahead and stand up. <laughs>